0: You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network.
1: Hi, this is Peter B. Gillis, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast.
0: Hello and welcome to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is What If? Episode 2B, covering a period of What If? from 1980. I'm your host, Curtis Findlay, and here's a little tease of the, uh, the the incredible What If? stories that we're going to talk about today. What if Spider-Man had stopped the burglar who killed his uncle? What if the Avengers had fought the Kree-Skrull War without Rick Jones? What if the Submariner had married the Invisible Girl? What if Doctor Doom had become a hero? And what if the Hulk's girlfriend, Jarella, had not died? This is What If, numbers 19 to 23 from the very first volume. And uh, we have some incredible stuff to talk about. So let's... Uh, I just have a few things that I want to mention first. Uh, we, I have a few interview clips... From an interview with Don Glute. And I do want to apologize to Don for uh, pronouncing his name in this episode incorrectly. It's Glute, not Glut. Uh, I recorded this episode before I had a chance to interview him and find out how to pronounce his name, so I do apologize for that. Also, I have some interview clips from an interview that I did with Peter B. Gillis. I got to chat with him about every issue that he did for What If... And you'll be able to hear that interview in full, I'm hoping, uh, next week, the next week episode. One other correction I want to make, I mentioned Harvey Kurtzman in uh, one of the episodes. But for some reason, I'm not sure why I called him Harvey Kurtzberg. So (laughs) please bear with me as I make that. I cringed when I was playing it back and editing this episode. I was like, oh, man, I made that mistake. So Harvey Kurtzman, everybody. Way back at the beginning of the pandemic, I was doing live streams of one ep- issue of What If a Day. And so the recordings you have here are actually uh, compilations of those, those videos. You can find them all on my Facebook page. Join me on Facebook on my Epic Collection group, or you can find me on social media, Epic Marvel Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Other than that, I think we should probably just get the ball rolling and talk about What If. What <music> If
1: Um, it would be a lo- it would be a long path for him to get to be the person you know I mean he had uh, Doc, you know, Doctor Strange um, was he was an evil magician. Goes to the the good. Peter Parker potentially he's st- he still has the spider powers, and he's and he's now remorseful and has learned you know has learned a lesson. Um, so it's not beyond the realm of possibility that he would do it. Uh, that he would then devote his life to to doing good. And I you know I did think about this and we uh, because. Yeah, there you know there was the talk of maybe doing a sequel to it, um, and saying yeah, but he's a movie producer. He's not going to go fight street crime. <laughs> yeah. You know, he may become a a nice movie star.
0: Right.
1: You know, you know, use his millions for good or something like that. But would he become the Spider Man? Who? Uh, well, he ends up fighting um, all, all of his old foes, which. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that 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 was kind of, you know, self-indulgent, but kind of <laughs> obvious um, redoing Spider-Man annual number one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he at least turns, you know, turns in the right direction. Uh, so, they, you know, they're ultimately good stories, but they go through an awful lot of, um, you know, an awful lot of each book is, wait, wait, this is our hero.
0: This time we are talking about what if number 19, what if Spider-Man had never become a crime fighter? And so if you have not read this issue, I recommend it because I think it's quite good. Let's see here. What are the credits for this one? Written by Peter B. Gillis, who wrote the last issue with uh, Doctor Strange. Penciled by Pat Broderick with inks by Mike Esposito. The cover inker is Joe Rubinstein, so it looks, I am, honestly, it looks a lot better than the inside. The inside's pretty good, too. Pat Broderick is not my favorite author. Artist, I think sometimes his poses just are a little bit awkward, but uh, he does a really good job, especially getting the, 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 the zaniness or the, um, I don't know, the anger that Peter Parker eventually gets to toward the end of this issue. You really feel it, really feel it. Now, the interesting thing about this one is that the title on the inside is what if Spider-Man had stopped the burglar who killed his uncle. That is a, I think that's a much different, a way different title than what if Spider-Man had not become a crime fighter because that doesn't, just stopping the burglar doesn't mean that he won't become a crime fighter, but it is interesting to see where this goes. We jump right into the action after a one-page synopsis of his origin story. We're like, okay, so what would happen if he actually did stop the, uh, the, the burglar Who's running by when he's at the TV station? And this is interesting because Peter Parker, in those early Steve Ditko days, he's very kind of self-motivated. He's he's kind of a um, he's a little bit of a jerk, but he's very inward-focused. He's only a teenager, remember, and like a lot of teenagers, they're kind of just looking out for themselves. They don't really pay attention to the world around them, and so the motivation for not stopping the burglar is he's looking out for number one. He's like, "This is not my problem. You got to deal with it." Uh, I'm just I'm just standing over here, and and so the motivation here in this one is also self motivated. He's like, actually, this could be really good for my publicity if I stop this guy. So maybe I'll do it so it's not that he's not, it's not that he's stopping the burglar out of a sense of moral duty or righteousness or whatever it's it's also because he's just a self-centered jerk and that's why he's doing it so i felt like that was actually kind of a neat way to portray this because it stays true to where peter parker was at as a person at that point And the only real difference now is because it's the event of Uncle Ben dying showed him that he needs to be a better person. If Uncle Ben doesn't die, he doesn't need to be shown that he needs to be a better person. So he just kind of continues on being a TV star. And of course, uh, J. Jonah Jameson doesn't like him because he's a TV star. (laughs) So there's the same... Sort of a, I mean, JJ is just like like that with everybody, but uh, Spider-Man grows more and more up the ranks of um, in, in the TV world and into stardom, and he gains more and more sort of power and fame and influence, and so we uh, we see Peter acting out. In school getting a little uppity on people and then we have him taken over on a talk show and the interesting p- part here in this talk show the talk show is preempted by oh look at this in this one panel on the tv screen he's holding up this bug spray that says simic on it art simic it's a letterer from marvel um the the tv programs interrupted because john jameson is in this capsule going through space and it does it, it dies he dies upon re-entry there's a crash Spider-Man saves him, but if Spider-Man is not a crime fighter, John Jameson is dead. And that really sets J.J. off on this crusade Crusade about, you know, why can't he be a real hero? How come he's just using his powers for, for TV and stuff? A great scene where Peter and Aunt May and Uncle Ben uh, talk because Peter reveals his secret identity, and they're like, you're using this for TV, you moron? Come on be a scientist to help the world. And he's Peter storms out of there and continues to do his thing. Uh, there's a movie that's made of Spider-Man and get, look at this. this. The marquee says it's starring Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman. How awesome of a Spider-Man movie would that be? <laughs> so good. Continuing on here, Peter shows up at the gala. Is this Mary Jane in the corner? I'm not sure. But he's with some blonde-haired, uh, blonde, I, I don't know, just a, his, his date. <laughs> he's got a nice Spider-Man cape. But then there's this one scene right in the middle where these two girls are talking, and this one girl with the the, the orange hair says, Oh, Wanda, um, I have to touch him. And then the other girl says, Hush, Annie, what, what would Harvey say? This is a caricature, the orange-haired girl is Little Annie Fanny from Playboy magazine. There's a comic strip, a little comic section called Little Annie Fanny, which was a parody of Little Orphan Annie. But the Harvey that this other girl references is the creator of Little Annie Fanny, um, Harvey Kurtzberg. So I thought that was kind of a little cool shout-out. Um, there are points in here where I feel like Pat Broderick is uh, a really good choice to kind of mimic the Steve Ditko style. He, of course, goes into much more detail than Steve Ditko does. But I find that some of his his faces and stuff, just uh, he really knows how to emulate um, kind of the Ditko feeling. Frank apparently loves Pat Broderick's art. He also loves this story. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if you heard me at the beginning of this one. I'm, I'm on the fence with Pat. He He's not my favorite, but he does a pretty good job with this issue. So we go on here, and um, J. Jonah Jameson calls out Peter's secret identity um, right on the front page of the headlines. So Peter decides to to uh, to take matters into his own hands, and he sort of scares Jonah into teaching him a lesson. <laughs> it's really funny, because he, 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 Jonah thinks he's going to kill him, but he actually just offers him an award, the Spider-Man award, kind of just to shove it in his face, which is pretty funny Spider-Man move. Uh, and then we get a great scene where uh, Spider-Man uh, infiltrates the Fantastic Four's headquarters that mimics what happens in Spider-Man number one. Uh, but he's not there to join the team. He's there to become the public relations... Um, expert, or to to sign them on as a, a PR person for his own promotional um, agency, his licensing agency that he's creating. So the Fantastic Four decide that they could use some good publicity, so they take Spider-Man on. And Spider-Man then, in the next couple of pages, goes to every superhero, the X-Men, the Avengers, and becomes the publicist for everybody. There's a great scene in the middle of this page where he talks to Stanley and Jack Kirby. <laughs> he buys the comic book company, and he says, And as your new boss, I want to see the amazing Spider-Man and the spectacular Spider-Man, both monthly. <laughs> I love it. Um, and then kind of following the timeline of how the Marvel universe is unfolding here Daredevil joins joins the the crew and he has his yellow costume and Spider-Man approaches him about being uh, on his a part of his his management company as well, and Spider-Man's like, but don't you think that they would f- don't don't you think that favorable publicity would help a vigilante working outside of the law? And Daredevil's like, oh, you do have a point there. And So Spider-Man gives him a new costume. Um, he's like, you must be colorblind, which is exactly what he said in that other issue or the other what if issue with Daredevil, or what if de- what if the world knew Daredevil was blind? Spider-Man kind of <laughs> forces him into this new red costume as well. But this one, Spider-Man, gives him a cape and a trident, (laughs) and Daredevil says, Spider-Man, I'd give you my opinion, but my vocabulary just isn't foul enough. (laughs) <laughs> Great comedy. A little, little uh, fun there. And this is where the story really starts to take off because Jay Jonah Jameson starts to, he wants to file a lawsuit against Spider-Man um, for promoting these vigilantes. And this is where Spider-Man or Peter Parker really sort of kind of dives off the deep end. He is so now consumed with his own image, the public awareness of him and his whole empire, his media empire that he's built, that he can't stand people kind of um, thinking that he's a bad, Guy, he goes a little nuts. Pat Broderick does. This is where I was talking about. He does really good kind of crazy faces, and I love this 70s style uh, long hair that he's got, um, very much like the the uh, old Spider-Man 70s TV series, <laughs> kind of similar. That was probably around the same time, maybe just after that. But anyway, uh, I love this this plot as well. Spider-Man. He's not a crime fighter, but he can still do Spider-Man type stuff. So he finds out who the big man is, which was a huge story in the early Steve Ditko days finds out who the secret identity is and, and finds out that it's Foswell who's working at the Bugle and arranges to have a rival newspaper break the story. And we have this full-page spread of the Daily Globe running the story about um, J. Jonah Jameson and, um, and Foswell and a crime syndicate run from the Bugle offices. It's really, really a great setup. I'll, I love that he came up with a, an extremely creative solution to his problem. Kind of a bully in this sense, but really is kind of ruining J. Jonah Jameson. You can see, and I I don't know about you, but when I... Think when I'm reading these comics, I definitely hear J.K. Simmons in my head when I'm reading Jonah's dialogue. It's just that he's such a perfect, a perfect J.J. from those original Sam Raimi movies that whenever I'm reading, it, I hear his voice. But then when you get into these dour kind of moments where where Jonah is down on himself, I can't hear J. I, I can't hear J.K. Simmons' voice in these moments. It switches to Ed Asner, who did the voice of J.J. in the Spider-Man cartoon in the 90s and so i'm there especially um like i can hear hear at asner's voice in this scene where where uh, robbie is talking to jonah and he's just like he's really depressed he's he doesn't want to give up comes up with this great plan to get back at spider-man and then and then then we're taken to this weird scene with a giant robot rampaging through the city and I love the coloring in this because it's so this one scene is so different than the rest of the coloring. And it's I think it's to make you a little unsettled and a little unsure. And so let's zoom into some of these panels. There's one panel here where JJ walks out onto the street and all of the people in the background are blue and green and the building and the and the cars are gray and the building is this gold color. And it's partly to make J. Jonah Jameson stand out so that we know where the focus of the panel is. But then it keeps going. The next panel like the sky is yellow and then if you go to the next panel in the phone booth and all of the background is gray the cars are all blue the people are all green and J. Jonah Jameson himself is a a pale yellow definitely makes the phone booth stand out but it's also I think to give us a sense of like a disorientation like something is going on here and then this robot arrives you can see it in the background of the next panel and again all of these weird colors Uh, and it's partly to do with the limited color palette of uh, comics at this time but usually they wouldn't go so a little bit so abstract so this robot here is coming to uh to terrorize the city and the whole bunch of the backgrounds you can see again are are blue and dark and stuff the sky is yellow in this next one the people are green and if you look at the just the panel on the as a whole it's very strange and spider-man comes in to save the day and then we find out that it was just a publicity stunt for a movie that's coming up, but the publicity stunt goes wrong and Daredevil has to say Spider-Man. And then the color goes back to normal. And we have this scene of Peter in his in his pad with the pool and some uh, girlfriends, and the coloring's back to normal. So it was just for that one scene, which meant that it was very, very specific. Um, it made, and you think about uh, the movies, I mean, they weren't made at this time, but like Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, where like they had all these wild colors to make it look more comic bookie quote-unquote comic bookie um that's kind of what was going on with that scene back there uh Okay, loving this, it, Sp- Daredevil confronts Spider-Man saying, someone's trying to kill you. And Peter's like, oh, no one wants to kill me. Why would anyone want to kill me? And then uh, so he's hired a whole bunch of people to help him practice his martial arts. And it turns out that one of them happens to be Kraven, who's going to um, lace him with some poison. He scratches his back. Uh, Daredevil recognizes this, but it's too late. He's already poisoned. And when Peter wakes up, now he's even kind of more in a, in a weird state because now he realizes someone is trying to kill him. Um, and he tries to go about business as usual and goes to a board meeting, and then. but I love this. Daredevil smells spirit gum and latex. What, is, what could it be? Masks. Everyone around the boardroom table is wearing masks. What happens? They go down a trap door, and it's the whole Sinister Six led by this creepy guy in a hood. that were the board members trying to trap Spider-Man. So this is a great scene, because Spider-Man has never met any of these guys before because he has not fought crime. None of them have been sent to jail by Spider-Man. Daredevil says he's fought a few, of them, and that's true because you know, Electro especially is in the early issues of Daredevil. Um, and Sandman says he's fought the Fantastic Four, but Peter hasn't fought anybody, so so Daredevil tries to get in there, but Spider Man doesn't want to fight because he's never fought anything anybody before like this, and he realizes he's he's being killed because of Daredevil's being killed because of Peter. Great scene that makes him want to suit up for the very first time and be heroic. And there's a great fight scene where he kind of takes on everybody one at a time. Uh, the scene with Meg uh, with Mysterio being punched across the panels very reminiscent to that one scenery um in the early Steve Ditko I think probably the first appearance where he gets punched across the the saloon bar but yeah uh the very last page we find that the hood hooded person is Jay Jonah Jameson who's hired the whole sinister 6 not a big surprise there uh, at all, but nice to get some conclusion to his story here. However, he says that, that uh, what does he say? You can't have one, Parker. You're a villain. How can you win when you've destroyed my life, my son, my newspaper? Only heroes win and you're a villain. The only problem I have with that is that Spider-Man did not destroy J. Jonah Jameson's son. Yes, he uh, son did die because Spider-Man did not save him, but there's no that's that wasn't even an option in this in this world. I don't I find it a little odd that J. Jonah Jameson would blame specifically Spider-Man for this, because there were many other heroes in the Marvel universe that could have saved his son, and he's not blaming any of them either. But anyway, it's just to make this his point more more specific and more pointed. So in the end, Peter realizes, I had a chance to do something good with my powers like Uncle Ben said. Instead, I used them for greed, destroying one man's life and nearly causing another's death. He realizes in the end that with great power comes great responsibility. So this is great. And this was what happened with the Doctor Strange issue in the last issue as well, is that Doctor Strange eventually got to the point where he realized the kind of person he needs to be, uh, just like in our regular 616 universe. And Peter is doing the same thing. It just took both of them longer to get to that point, but eventually they got to that point. And it's like, yeah, these guys are actually good people. They're not bad guys. They just didn't have the the, the correct motivation or the right opportunity uh, to display that or to, to have that world. View make a change in their minds so for this one i felt like it ended in a really good spot i also wouldn't have minded if we saw peter go completely nuts and go full villain that that would have also been kind of a cool story to to see but yeah that is this story maybe not yeah it was enjoyable i did like this one I like that they're kind of getting back on track with the what ifs because especially in this letter page, um, there's a few comments in the letter page. These three letters happen to be saying exactly my feelings of the things that I've been saying in the last few issues. So let's see. um, Nova. This guy didn't like the Nova issue very much. He said, yeah, he said, I found the exploration of this topic. Enthralling, which was the same with me. I must admit that using the random generated Nova powers was a very useful vehicle in treating the theme because, in yeah, it was the theme that was more important than the actual characters themselves. And uh, the, the next person says that the, all the stories were kind of stupid except for the one with Peter Parker because we knew who Peter Parker was. And I thought that was the same one, what I said. Uh, and then this last comment here, where did it go? He says, uh, as with the previous What If with Sergeant Fury fighting World War II in space, I had difficulties with the normal Nova 4 and 1 and What If number 15. It seems to me that you're letting your writers get away from what the What If premise as established in the very first issue, namely a What If tale is one that diverges from mainstream Marvel history at some point to explore an alternate history. So, yeah, those are, that's exactly what I've been saying for these past few issues. And I have to let Marvel, like, you know, Marvel was still figuring things out. It was a new concept. They were throwing things against the wall and seeing what stuck. And I think the letter pages. And my views are in line with the general public and how they viewed What If at the time. And, and they're, they're course-correcting now, Now that especially now that Roy's out of there. I think they're getting right back to the way things should be, and uh, they're getting back on track. So I'm enjoying What If as they, they find themselves. And this next issue is definitely going to follow that pattern. What if the Avengers had fought the Kree-Skrull war without Rick Jones? This has been a long time since I read the Kree-Skrull War. It's been a long, long time, so I went back and reread uh, most of it to make sure that I'm getting the finer points of of uh, this issue of What If, and to get it fresh in my memory. So let's go. And this is a this is a key moment. I heard someone on one of the Facebook groups I'm a part of. I don't remember which one said that he just doesn't like What If simply for the fact that the titles are on the cover. And that they give away major, major spoilers, which is true. This is one of them. So because you can infer from this this uh, thing that Rick Jones is the key to the Kree Skrull War conflict, and that um, you know that he plays a major role. So that is you know that's that's especially true with things like well, what if Gwen Stacy had lived? That that implies that she dies. In fact, she does. I hope these days that some of these are not major spoilers. A lot of those issues are, you know, common knowledge, especially Gwen Stacy. That kind of informs Peter Parker for who he is even today. But anyway, that's not what we're talking about here. What if number 20? What if the Avengers fought the Kree-Skrull War without Rick Jones? And the credits for this issue are um, Tom DeFalco as on the script. This is the first time we've seen Tom's name on a What If issue. Alan Cooperberg on layout Layouts, Bruce Patterson on Inks, we have Denny O'Neill and Mark Gruenwald as, as editors. Uh, this, I'm sure, probably took a lot of fine-tuning and editing to weave in the different plot points because uh, they, they do a lot of things here to kind of tie things together and give shout-outs to the original Uh, the original issues. If you want to join my live stream, you're more than welcome to, just uh, tap the link on the bottom there. Okay, let's get into this. What if the Avengers had fought the Kree-Skrull War without Rick Jones? Uh, So we have here um, a little summary of the events leading up to the confrontation between Rick Jones and Ronan the Accuser. We learn what we need to know about the Kree-Skrull War, that they are on opposite sides of the galaxy with the Earth being right in the middle. The Kree have developed a communication device that will that can cross galaxies and the Skrulls want that for a weapon, and so they're going to attack each other. Meanwhile, Captain Marvel, the Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver have been taken prisoners of the Skrulls. Um, and then we learn about Rick Jones here. That And here's the key moment for the the, the Kree-Skrull War spoilers in case you haven't read this before. The 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 in Supreme Intelligence gives Rick Jones um, special mind powers, and Rick Jones is able to call forth heroes from the Golden Age to aid the Avengers, and they are able to stop the the Kree invasion. Look at all those guys, including the original Vision right there, the original Ghost Rider, I don't remember what his name is, Skullhead, skull Skullface, something like that, Firehead. Uh, anyway, so the so Rick Jones, uh, he confronts Ronan the Accuser, Ronan swats him away, and then takes him on a little journey. But in this comic, what if Ronan just got fed up with him and just killed him right there on the spot? Which, frankly, is probably what Ronan would have done if this hadn't been, you know, if the writers hadn't wanted Rick Jones for <laughs> a key plot point. <laughs> Because Ronan just—he just does away with people. So that's what happens here. And what happens here is that uh, the Avengers try to stop as best they can, but if they don't have the same—the same, the same uh, backup power of those Golden Age heroes, they can't do it. So, uh, and also here's the other kicker: is the Supreme Intelligence apparently he prepared inside rick jones the ability to to harness this power many many years ago wasn't expecting rick jones to die so now that he's dead his plans have been ruined as well there is a lot of kind of fighting to no avail in this issue they kind of just go at it and nothing is really accomplished i kind of feel like there's a lot of filler in this issue because we know that they're not going to be able to solve this conflict so why not um Meanwhile, there is a, there's a subplot where the the princess gets tired of her dad's ways and starts a revolution. Um, one of the big fallouts from the fact that Rick Jones dies is that Captain Marvel, who had been bonded with Rick Jones, uh, kind of goes a little nuts with grief. He breaks out of the out of the prison that they're in, finds out Rick is dead, and then kind of goes on a little rampage. And that's different from this one uh, as well from from the original. The other thing is the giant man is sent. He's flying in space, and uh, this eventually his journey eventually leads him to becoming like going back to being Hawkeye. Uh, But that doesn't happen in this version of it. The Fantastic Four, the the Avengers, and everybody these are the people who are now gathered to join the fight instead of the Golden Age heroes. And what I was expecting when I was reading this issue, this isn't how it ends up, is they're putting all of Earth's biggest heroes onto one ship, and they're all going to go and fight in outer space. Well, I thought, okay, they're all going to die, and then Krees or Skrulls are going to take over the Earth because there are no more heroes, right? (laughs) That would have been kind of a, you know, this would have been what I was expecting, but that's not exactly what happened here. So anyway, I really like the splash page with all of these characters. Um, all of them pop up in the story, I think, at some point, because the, the whole kree Scroll war spans 10 issues or so, and the way that Roy Thomas works it out is that each chapter, even though it's this big, long story, each chapter has a beginning, middle, and end, uh, as is the, the typical way that they wrote Marvel Comics in the 70s. And so each of these characters pops up at one point or another, I think, and, uh, and so they have a, a page where they kind of bring them all together here for the what-if, which is cool. Uh, Nick Fury also he dies, uh, valiantly. in... oh no, does he die in outer space? I can't remember. The the helicarrier at least does. Um, but yeah, they there's more the, the heroes fighting and whatnot. Honestly, a lot of this is skippable. The super scroll comes back. Um, this this issue was really really drawn out. I figure that they probably could have told the story in half the page count. Um. But the heroes end up helping with a uh, civil or then with an uprising with the Skrull princess here. And that leads to a civil war on the Skrull homeworld so that they're not able to launch their, their assault that they wanted to. Uh, so that part is stopped. And then meanwhile the um, Asgard the Asgardians join the fight and they go to the Kree side and they stop the Kree side of the war. So the war still stops, but it just takes a different turn. Uh, which is too bad because I figured that if they're going to tell the story, what if Rick Jones had not been part of the Kree-Skrull war, I would have figured that they would have had either the Krees or the Skrulls win because wouldn't that be the natural outcome if Rick Jones wasn't there to stop that? Then, Then the heroes are sunk. If he was the key to stopping everything, if you remove that, then things don't stop. And in this one... They do stop. The supreme intelligence finds a way to uh, do to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. In the end, he becomes this kind of baby alien, glowing eye thing, and stops the Kree side. And then all of the heroes are safe, and nobody dies in the end except for Rick Jones. They're all sad about it. So I felt like this was kind of a bummer of an issue. As much as I was really excited to see this, I felt like the Kree Skrull war shouldn't have been stopped by the Earthlings. It really, it really shouldn't have. I mean. I guess one of the, the, the outcomes is that the Kree's and Skrull come to a truce in the end. So that's a different outcome because Kree and Skrull are still fighting in Marvel Universe today, uh, in the regular six one six universe. But I just think that they they really missed out an opportunity to show um, I don't know, post apocalyptic future. <laughs> that's what I would have liked to see. Anyway, that that brought the whole issue down for me. There's a lot of filler, like I said. Not the best what-if issue that I've, I've read. I'm curious to note that at the very bottom of this page here, after perhaps Marvel says so long, it says that the next issue is going to be a sequel to what-if number one. And what-if number one is the one where the, where Spider-Man joins the Fantastic Four. That's cool. Let's explore that, that world a little bit more. That's kind of what I wanted from one of the previous issues is "But well, what happens next, because there's gotta be more to the story. They're just beginning on their journey. I think that's cool if they're able to explore some more of these worlds as long as it doesn't detract from the what if mandate of changing one key component so having said that the next issue is what if the invisible girl of the fantastic four married the submariner this is um this is a sequel to what if number one when this when spider-man joined the fantastic four they're following through uh, because at the end of that one, in order to save the world, uh, Invisible Girl leaves the surface and goes with Namor and becomes his bride. And Namor does some science, some magic science, uh, in order to allow her to breathe underwater. And, and so they, they leave and have their life together. And then the Fantastic Four, with now Spider-Man instead of Invisible Girl, carry on on the surface. So what if that story continued? I liked that story in in What If number 1. Uh, I thought it was quite good. And this one is also quite good. We have artwork from Gene Colan which automatically gives it a, a like a couple more stars in my book because Gene is awesome. Uh, this one is written by Bill Mantlo. Of course, Bill Mantlow is the guy who famously created Rocket Raccoon, among others, and um, and never really had a steady gig here and there. Uh, did a bunch of issues of of Spider-Man and such, but uh, did a lot of fill-ins over the years. And and so he gets this random issue of What If and does a great job of it. He nails all the characters uh, and progresses them in such a really interesting way. So we start off this issue here um, by seeing the Fantastic... well, three members of the Fantastic Four fighting the Super Skrull. And the Super Skrull has the powers, I guess because Invisible Woman is not part of the team at this point. He only has powers of three of the three guys. He doesn't have any spider powers, apparently. But, uh, but yeah... We get three pages in and we're like, oh, yeah, this is just going. And then all of a sudden, Spider-Man joins. I'm like, oh, yeah, Spider-Man joins the team. Very cool. Oh, yeah, Ben wants to say that uh, Mantlo was the regular writer on Micronauts and ROM. That's very true. How could I forget that? <laughs> Thanks for pointing that out. So, yeah, we, we come to this point where Spider-Man saves the day, catches the Super Skrull, and, uh and Reed gets really mad at him and Reed I love the way that this is progressing because Reed is resentful of Spider-Man for for pushing out the Invisible Woman even though it was Spider-Man points out it was actually Reed and his um his lack of attention to her and always pushing her to the side um because you know he didn't want to put her in harm's way that actually drove her away and he and he eventually splits and leaves the team. I think this was a necessary move because the rest of this issue is so focused on the family dynamic of the Fantastic Four as we know it, that having Spider-Man there really doesn't make sense. So having Bill Mantlo take Spider-Man out of the picture, and by the way, Ben also says he had a good run on the Hulk. How could I forget that too? Um, (laughs) I'm just, uh, boy, I'm glad that you're here to correct me because yeah, Bill Mantlo did have some incredible runs. but anyway, Bill Matlow taking Spider-Man out of the picture was a smart move at the beginning in this issue, allowing us to bring the core of these characters back to how we how we know them as the Fantastic Four. It's weird that they had to make this a sequel. They could have made this just a regular what-if issue and had, at the very beginning, just had a divergent path where Sue goes off and marries Namor. It didn't have to stem from this. They wanted, I think they wanted to have the novelty of it being a a continuation of that story Um, but really it's not from this point on so we get this one scene here uh, of namor in atlantis this is a very similar scene to fantastic four annual number one where he comes triumphantly into into um, atlantis and this time you can see he's got sue and she is pregnant she has she's carrying their child and then right after this the very next panel on the top of the next page is Dorma and Lord Krang and the two of them are uh, looking at this and trying to conspire and of course if you are regular if you are regular readers or if you know of uh, the the submariner story Krang is kind of the bad guy in those stories he he's the he's always trying to undermine Namor and take the the, the throne away from him normal kind of flip-flops between Krang and, and Namor. And so we think that they're going to be up to no good through this. How are they going to get rid of Namor? How are they going to get rid of Invisible Woman? Uh, Gene Colan was the uh, main artist on Submariner for many a year. And so to see him back doing this, doing his character again, and also him doing Fantastic Four is very, very cool. I don't think that he's done a whole lot of Fantastic Four issues, if any, really. Um, I'm sure someone can uh, correct me on that. But it's neat to see him. Uh, He draws some very beautiful women in this one, like Dorma and Sue. It's great. So, yeah, let's see, he goes, Sue begs him to go and make peace with, with Reed and Johnny and Ben and invite them to Atlantis to celebrate in the birth of their child. And he tries to do that, but, um, oh, just before that, Ben quits the team because he's fed up. It's, it's very interesting dynamics here, seeing Reed progressively, uh, because he's lost the woman he loves, he's more getting more and more and more emotional Uh, which is something that we often don't see from Reed because he suppresses his emotions because it's not as logical. He's a very logic-minded person. Um, But when it comes to Sue, he loves her very much. And so when Sue's taken out of the picture, it's kind of driving him nuts. Uh, And Ben, believe it or not, is the one who's trying to hold them all together. Usually Sue plays the role of Peacemaker and the glue that holds the team together, but when she's not there... It's Ben that's trying to do that, and he gets just frustrated, and he quits the team. So it's now down to the Fantastic Two. Namor comes, and Sue thinks that he's going to... I mean, uh, Reed thinks that he's going to attack, so they have a little bit of a skirmish, and Namor doesn't really have time to explain, and he just leaves. And I like the words at the very end. He says, I came in peace, and in peace I do depart. But the hatred you harbor in the recesses of your hearts for my people and and I will one day head both of our worlds down the path to destruction. If it's a war you want, you will find Atlantis ready. Now, here comes the diabolical part, and I love this. Reed is not thinking things through. He really has become the villain in this story. He takes a doctored tape of Namor saying that the people of Atlantis are ready for war and they're going to attack the surface world. Uh, and he's trying to convince the UN to, to to strike first. All of this because Sue rejected him. It's just nuts. And Ben comes along and says, "No, no, no! I got proof that this film was doctored. It's quite brilliant." And and then Johnny and and, and Reed, both of them, go to Atlantis to try and take care of business or whatever. Wonderful. I love this progression of Reed becoming the villain. He it it, se- it doesn't seem unreasonable. It actually does follow suit with how Reed behaves when Sue is under attack. We have seen this in the regular 616 world before. It's kind of cool, and I like the path that this is going down. They head over to Atlantis with this bizarre plan to plant a device that will turn all of the water breathers into air breathers, and so they will be forced to go to the surface. Um, And Namor, because he can breathe in both places, uh, it's um, it's he, he's not going to be affected, so all he can do is stand by and watch all of his people fleeing his own kingdom. Phil wants to point out the the panel with Sue's face in the spray here. Yeah, very cool. Uh, love what Gene Colan does here. Yeah, Gene, he, um, Phil calls Colan a genius. He was indeed a genius, for sure. Moving back here, Johnny distracts Namor while Reed goes underwater. Uh, and he Reed has these, what's he called, Oxy tablets, where you can eat them and breathe underwater. Now, that's something that does come from the early days of Fantastic Four. Why these things aren't you know, widespread mass-produced and, uh, and the superheroes use them all the time, I don't know. But they only pull them out every once in a while. <laughs> but he's also allowed, found a way to, for the Human Torch to breathe underwater. Through this, Kang says that uh, he's going to protect Sue through this. And we're like, and he and Dorma are scheming something behind the scenes. We don't know what what it is, but we're going to find out. Eventually, everything comes to a head when Reed breaks into the bedroom where Sue is getting ready to give birth. He doesn't even realize that she's pregnant. He's like, "Uh, What have you done to my Sue? She's so large. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, everything's coming to a head here. It is wonderful. There's a great scene here where they have to confront each other and Reed explains his plan, and he, he's just the villain. It's, uh, it's great. Um, and, and then there's the point where Sue has to eventually lash out as well against Reed because he's just being so unreasonable, and he's hurting people, and so she fights back. Um, oh, great comment from Ben. Uh, Reed didn't want all the heroes getting hooked on Oxy. <laughs> great. Love it. Uh, okay, we're back to this. And Krang says, um, I will go out and find the weapon that's going, that's killing everybody. Um, so he goes out, he leaves, and Lady Dorma says some words. It's true, this gambit of yours will return Susan to her former, former air-breathing state, but the very shock will kill Susan and her yet unborn child. Is this your great love, surface man, to murder a woman who wants you not? He has this realization that he's he's doing some wrong things here. And, uh, and he realizes, he comes he comes to terms with the fact that he's being the villain, which is great. And Krang sneaks out, uh, on land or under sea, Atlantis must not be left without the Submariner. Warlord Krang, however, is far more expendable, so he leaves. Um, oh yeah, I guess he doesn't announce that he's going to go find the thing, but he leaves. What is he up to? Some sort of diabolical scheme. We don't know. Um, anyway, Reed goes to try and stop the machine and finds that Warlord Krang uh, has died there trying to turn it off. And here's here's the definitive moment right here. Reed is running out of air himself. His oxy is, is wearing off. And Namor realizes that Reed is trying to shut off the machine and gives him another oxy tablet that's allowing him to breathe. So Namor actually saves Reed Richards' life. Who is the hero and who is the villain in this picture? Obviously, Namor. I love how they flipped the narrative on its head. It's really, really good. And in the end... Lord Krang dies in the process. Namor brings his body back and he, and declares him a hero because he's he died trying to save Atlantis. It's so good. I, I love I love how this this story just unfolds and plays out and eventually Reed is like, okay, I guess I have to go. Um, and he as he as he leaves, Sue has given birth to the son and holds the baby up and Reed is like, oh man, that could have been my son, but I screwed it up. By the way, never hold a newborn baby like this. They have no neck support and you will probably kill your baby. (laughs) But it looks great when Gene Colin draws it, let me tell you. Oh boy, okay, so that's the issue. Like I said, excellent stuff. I like that they got Spider-Man out of the way at the beginning. Um, that they focused on the the love triangle between these three. It's just a well-told, well-crafted story. Excellent, excellent issue of What If. I really liked it. I hope you all liked it too, because it is worth its 75-cent cover price. Uh, Find it in the back issues. Look it up in the complete collection here, Volume 2. And uh, yeah, so one other thing here is that there are some letter pages. They've expanded the letter pages to two pages. There's a notable new section called How About, uh, where they list all of the, the what-ifs that they want to see. What if Ben Grimm was no longer the thing, a sequel to Marvel 2 and 1 number 50? I'm not going to read all of these, but um, some of these, like, what if an Earthman had become the Herald of Galactus? That actually does come true with Frankie Ray. Uh, what if the Beatles had become the Fantastic Four? <laughs> Very funny. And they even... Mark Gruenwald even puts in here, what if Dracula joined the X-Men, and then he says, no, he's the mutant, he wouldn't, he wouldn't qualify. And then there's another section here called the Watcher Knows, where people get to ask the Watcher questions, and the Watcher answers them. And I think these are really cool, just a little snippets. They're not worth making into a full stories or, uh, or anything like that, but is there any difference between a parallel Earth and an alternate Earth, or are they the same thing? I think that's a great question. And the Watcher says, they are different. Alternate Earths diverge from one another at certain critical points, and then parallel Earths evolve similarly but independently without divergent points. So, like, um, I don't know, I don't have any examples of a parallel Earth. Someone help me out here. Like the 1602 parallel Earth. Have you seen those, the Neil Gaiman story? That's a parallel Earth. But an alternate Earth is like a- Age of Apocalypse, where where Xavier died and all of a sudden history went in a different direction. So that's going to be a little bit of a reoccurring uh, letter page column, which is kind of cool in the next few issues of What If... Uh, Phil has a question, he wants to know what powers this Franklin has in terms of um, Namor and Sue's kid. Now I wonder if Franklin has the powers because of the combined DNA of Reed and Sue, because if Reed's DNA is out of the picture, does that mean that Franklin does get any powers at all? Maybe he doesn't. He has fins on his feet. Uh, Let's go back. Um, Yeah, the baby has fins on his feet, so we know that he at least can fly. He's also got the pointy ears, I'm assuming he'll be able to breathe underwater. But yeah, does he have any cosmic, cosmic ray powers? I don't know. That'd be cool to find out. Maybe they'll do another sequel to this story. And then the next issue here is another Fantastic Four story. What if Dr. Doom had become a hero?
1: That was my last one, the last one. Uh, Shooter edited that one. And, you know, where Roy gave me a lot of leeway, Chris, uh, Stan leeway, I guess you might say. <laughs> Shooter was on the phone with me almost every night talking about that story. And, you know, I mean, he really took it seriously. And that was the last one I ever did, you know, the last comic book show I ever did for Marvel was Alan.
0: We're going to be talking about what if Dr. Doom had become a hero based on what if number 22. I I really enjoyed this issue. I'll just say that right off the bat. The last issue, or yeah, the last issue of what if with Mr. Fantastic becoming a villain was excellent. And then this one with Dr. Doom being a hero, also excellent. Very, very great I love how it keeps the, the same story kind of, but yeah, it has the the, the, the definite moment that, where the paths diverge and the new alternate timeline is created, and a couple of things happen differently uh, in order to create this new story going forward here. So who is behind uh, this issue? It's written by Don Glutt, haven't seen him for a few issues now, but uh, I've enjoyed his his it's the the stories that he's created. He's done a really good job uh, on these what if stories, and this one is uh, no exception. Uh, artist is Fred Keita. There's a name you don't hear very often. In fact, I think I really only know Fred Keita from the Spider Man newspaper comic strip. Uh, if you haven't seen those, uh, he he did he did it for a little while. I think it's been collected in the Library of American Comics, um, Amazing Spider Man newspaper strip volume five four or five i can't remember but that's yeah he he, he's really good this issue he does an excellent job and he just isn't a guy that isn't that you hear about anymore um so that's kind of a shame we open with this great splash page that's recreating a scene from fantastic four number five and this is the first appearance of dr doom of course although in this alternate universe, never happens. And we'll get into that in a second. Another wonderful splash page. I think they needed some filler. So we have two splash pages that kind of don't really have anything to do with the story other than just some filler. But it's nice. It looks good. And then we're taken to the origin of, of Dr. Doom, and telling a little bit about his backstory um, growing up in Latveria, uh, as in a gypsy camp with parents. Um, gypsy parents and such, the the failed experiment that when he was in college r- with roommate Reed Richards uh, and the result that scars his face. He goes to Tibet, becomes Dr. Doom um, and then comes back and takes over Latveria. So here's where the paths uh, diverge. Very, very interesting here. The, the moment that is now famous when Reed tries to reach out to his roommate saying, I noticed you have... Some of your, your maths off just by a decimal plate, place, and this could be, you know, this could be a detrimental to your experiment that you're doing. Dr. Doom, being so vain, says that he doesn't need his help. He's smarter than Reed. He's going to do it himself. But what if, just out of curiosity, he looks at his paper and is like, maybe Reed is right? And then he calls back to Reed, You say that you have examined my equations that are in error, Richards, and Doom actually listens. Does that seem out of character for Doom? Maybe knowing his ego and his arrogance, but if he's there is an alternate world where Doom really wants to save his mother. Like that's what the experiment is all about. It's trying to save his mother's soul, um, because it's in hell and he's trying to you know get it out of eternal torment. So if his love for his mother is so strong that he's willing to forego his ego and look at you know possible disaster, then this is a whole new world for Doom. Reed volunteers to be his assistant, and Doom accepts. That seems okay to me, because Doom would never... He, he knows that he's Reed's superior intellect, uh, so having him as an assistant would be in an appropriate position for Reed. <laughs> so they conduct the experiment together, and because of that, it works. Doom is able to find, uh, go through the astral plane and find the, the soul and bring him bring his mother save his mother i guess or something so oh no hold on a second i got this all wrong he he the, the i remember now yeah <laughs> sorry <laughs> there's a lot to this plot but doom his experiment is a success and he has contacted his mother he knows where she is and now he has to go on his journey to try and figure out how to free her and that's what he does because he's mastered the science behind it now he needs to master the mysticism behind it the the key thing here is because he was helped by reed his ego is a little bit in check now and he goes to save his mother with a completely different world view because he hasn't been horribly scarred because he doesn't hold so much resentment for reed richards he doesn't devote his life to like destroying the fantastic four and getting revenge and this is this is major because now he can devote his entire being his entire his entire intellect and everything into saving his mom so he does this he leaves college and he never sees reed richards again he never confronts the fantastic forever ever again and he spends his, his time traveling figures out what he needs to do and he the the monks outfit him with this special armor it's gold to represent his actual righteous heart instead of being iron and instead of being trapped in his cold you know his cold hard heart so he's got this new outfit. It's great. Yeah, it's a little hokey, but Dr. Doom's costume is always hokey, right? Uh, he flies away and it manages to do this to, to save his mother. And Mephisto, this gains the attention of Mephisto, who's like, someone has stolen a soul from my realm. And Doom has confronted Mephisto many, many times. In fact, I think it was Mephisto who's the cause of Doom's mom's death in the first place. But anyway, the new Doom, because he's now saved his mom, his new lease on life, he also knows because his mom told him that he's the rightful ruler of Latveria. So he goes there to try and take over the country, but in a different way. The regular 616, he went in there with his iron fist and just took it over. And this time, he's going to be a liberator. He unwillingly, or unknowingly, I guess, uh, ends up killing the guy who was there before the the evil ruler that was in in place before when a when a bullet ricochets off of his shield. So this frees doom of any actual murder. He doesn't have that guilt on his on his hands or anything like that because he is a benevolent ruler. This is to show that he isn't going to willingly go and overthrow, but he is now made the ruler and the first thing he does is he frees all of his all of his Romani people and falls in love with this girl valeria who whom he knew from childhood and they get married and i think in the comics they she he because he's evil because he's an evil ruler or a you know a despot she does she doesn't want to have anything to do with doom no matter how hard it tries and eventually she becomes somewhat of a an evil sorceress herself or something i can't remember i think that's in mark wade's run and i think that doom even ends up killing her spoiler alert but anyway so yeah she this is just everything is going well for him he's everyone loves him he's a great ruler he and he invites everybody into his palace which apparently hadn't been done before they get married and but then as they're just as after their wedding doom gets teleported away to another dimension where he fights mephisto and this is the best part of the whole issue because they have this great confrontation where Mephisto says, you stole a soul of mine, and now I'm taking everything that you've built up. I have the entire city of Latveria in my hand. All of these souls belong to me, unless you give me back that one. So what are you going to trade? Are you going to trade the souls of many for the soul of your mother? Like, who are you going to choose? And I love this, because this this is what Mephisto is the best at, and this is what Satan is known for, is... Is it tricking just the, the, the mind games that he plays? Doom tries to take matters into his own hands, but of course, that does not work against a god. And so, and so, Doom has to, uh, has to, you know, actually make the deal. So, Mephisto being now even more tricky, it's like, you didn't take that first deal. How about this? I will say, I will let you save all of the townspeople of Latveria, and I will only trade your mother's soul for one. It'll be a one for one trade. Valeria for your mother? Who do you choose? And this is even worse, because Doom could accept um, losing his mom to save countless hundreds of people, but how do you choose between, only between the two people you love the most? This is, I think, one of the things that made, as much as you love to hate a Brand New Day, or what? what is it, One More Day, uh, the Spider-Man story, that was one of the brilliant things, is Spider-Man had to choose between the two people he loved, and how do you make that impossible decision? Doom is faced in this same situation, and Doom even says, well, can, can you take my soul for my for my mother's soul? Like I, He doesn't mind sacrificing himself because he is the hero in this story. Mephisto's like, no, 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 choose between Valeria or your mother. What do you think he does? I, I I just the dialogue in this scene is so great. Don Glutt just nails it with with the dialogue and the emotional state that Doom is in, and how tricky and evil Mephisto is. It's just brilliant. I love it. And he, in the end, he chooses his mother, and he's instantly transported back to Latveria, and Valeria is not there, and he locks himself in his room, uh, in his in his castle. And now we're back to the where. Doom is kind of in 616, where ev- there's one day every year where he tries to contact the dead in order to save Valeria's life. And he just can't do it year after year. And that's what he does in the regular Marvel Universe as well. And it kind of ends on that sad note. Now, he doesn't turn into an evil leader. He still cares for his city, but he is racked with this guilt. If he had not saved his mother, he wouldn't be in this situation um, but then, if he had not saved his mother, he'd still be—I don't know. It's just there's so many like just things at play here that Doom has to wrestle with in his mind, and it's brilliant. I really like it. So, the uh, the artwork is pretty straightforward. Like I said, Fred Kida does an excellent job, and he does especially a really good job with uh, with the facial expressions through this scene with Mephisto and with uh, as Doom is agonizing over his decisions. It's just talking heads but he does it so well in keeping it interesting and there's a lot of dialogue in these pages but it doesn't feel overburdened with dialogue uh it's interesting the whole way through uh yeah so does this make sense does this follow what doom would do i think doom doom's motivation is for his the stuff to dealing with his mother is always out of love and so we know because it's always out of love, This the, the whole story seems to, um, it, it makes sense with Doom's character. When you remove that sense of ego that resulted from the explosion um, and, and the hatred for Reed Richards that it resulted from the explosion, he now is freed up to just be more loving so Steven says, I wonder what would happen if this version met the Fantastic Four. Would he be the fifth member? To me, he is always being kind of an anti-hero. anti-hero. And that's that's kind of true. Um, he acts in the best interest of Latveria always. He actually does honestly care about those people. And so would he be a fifth member? I don't know that he would want to join a team, but he would definitely partner with them, especially since he has a good relationship with Reed Richards in this universe. It's not unreasonable to think that, you know, they would actually probably work together. Um, maybe even Reed would help him co- co- try to figure out how to contact Valeria since he knew that Doom had a successful machine already. It's very interesting to think about the possibilities of this, of this world here. And so many things wouldn't happen um, because Doom would not be evil. And the Secret Wars would go very in a very different direction. Things like Twenty Ninety Nine, Doom 2099 wouldn't even exist because Doom would never become that, that person. Um, yeah, it's just a, a variety of different possibilities. It's very, very cool. I loved it. I hope you guys like this issue too. Uh, in the letter column in this page, they talk about the Spider-Man um, issue here. But what's really interesting to me here is that uh, throughout these letter pages, the, the idea of no prizes has kind of been changing, and we all know no prizes, or I hope you know no prizes. Marvel doesn't really talk about no prizes anymore, but when I was growing up through the 80s and 90s, no prizes were always reserved for people who caught mistakes, And then, but that's not how you get a no prize. You have to come up with a solution as why the mistake actually isn't a mistake after all. Initially, in the '60s, when uh, when they started issuing no prizes, it was just for people who called out mistakes. But when people started calling out mistakes or continuity errors in the "What If" issues, the editors would always say, "Well, why can't that be actually the way it is? This is an, this is a, an alternate reality. Come up with a solution." And so people would start giving solutions as to how these mistakes actually aren't mistakes, and that became the actual reason why we have no prizes today and it's all i didn't realize that what if is the reason for why th- they made that change in no prizes but they kind of go on about it here in fact there's one letter by rick a guy named rick jones <laughs> who, who kind of makes a, up a set of rules how marvel thinks these set of rules should be in terms of uh, being awarded a no prize and marvel's like oh yeah that sounds pretty good to me <laughs> so that's cool uh, there's another section of the Watcher Knows where some people write in and the Watcher asks questions. And some of these questions are like, uh, um, here's one that relates, are Satan, Hela, Mephisto, and Pluto actually different physical forms of the same deathless being or does each exist in a different dimension? And the Watcher says, all of these rulers of the nether worlds are separate entities existing on their own specific dimensional nether worlds with their own spheres of dominion. Satan and Mephisto operate from tangent spheres of existence. If you always wondered about that, it kind of goes into that kind of detail in J.M. Demetrius' run on The Defenders as well. If you read The Six-Fingered Hand, they talk about, uh, how, well, talk about the relationship between Satan, Mephisto, and the other kind of devil characters. And here's another one that says, Whatever happened to Mantis, the Celestial Madonna? Did she ever give birth to the Celestial Messiah? And then the Watcher says, not yet. She has been traveling through other realms of reality. She reportedly even ventured out of this multiverse. And that is a reference because Mantis is Steve Englehart's character. And when Steve Englehart left Marvel, he he took that character. And he couldn't really take the character because the copyright belongs to to Marvel. But he took a character very similar to, to Mantis and put her in his own creation called Coyote. And she had the the baby in that book from Coyote, which was released, I think, from either First Comics or or Eclipse Comics. I don't remember. Um, but that's what he means when he when he says traveling through other realms. I think Steve Englehart also made her appear in an in an issue of Justice League when he was working for DC. And yeah, she's reportedly even ventured out of this multiverse, not in Marvel anymore. So I thought that was kind of a cool way to address that situation. Um, yeah, there's also. Um, a bunch of what-ifs that people want to see, including what if Magneto had formed the X-Men. He says, Chris Claremont has a plot like this in the works. Sorry, Chris Claremont has had a plot like this in the works for years now. And I want to see that. Does anyone know if that actually happened? I'm not sure. Steven says, fun fact, they still have no prizes in UK comics by Panini. It's the tradition that it still gets used today. I'm glad because... There are uh, only a few comics in the United States that have letter pages even. They, they tend to not even have those, and they don't even talk about No Prizes. I want to see the No Prize come back. There was a No Prize comic book. Did it, does anyone have that? I got a copy um, of the, the No Prize, I can't remember what it's called, No Prize the Comic, where it's just uh, talking about all the different mistakes that have been made throughout Marvel, the early years of Marvel. It's really, really good. Uh, okay, that is my episode for today. What are we going to talk about later today? As long as I can read this issue. Um, it is, what if the Hulk had become a barbarian?
1: I really enjoyed doing it. I, I had my revenge also there because this was also, I really felt that the way Len Wein had killed off jurella was stupid and gratuitous. And, you know, we should we shouldn't kill off girlfriends, you know? Um, it was, I, I understood the necessity because it would have changed the, the book completely. But I said, let's do, you know, I, I, I want to do that. But the cover, jo, you know, John Dosema strikes again.
0: No kidding. So good.
1: And that's what everybody remembers, that cover. <laughs> and <laughs> That turned into Marvel continuity.
0: Right. car Yeah. You
1: know, everybody loved that cover so much. And, and you know, I, I had a wonderful time working. Mm-hmm. a lot of things, Sal Busemi is, and he did a wonderful job. But uh, Herb, to me, being the reader that I, that I was of the, at that point, was was the Hulk
0: artist. Today is a very different issue of What If? This time it's What If? number 23. There's actually three parts to this issue. I wonder if it's now because it's under the editorialship of Mark Gruenwald. Uh, you know, he's changing things up a little bit. Instead of having one story that stretches all of its 32 pages... There's actually three stories in this issue, and this is gonna continue for a, for a few issues more, not quite the whole remainder of the series, but at least through uh, the next few issues here. It says in the letter pages that this decision is an experiment. let see if people will like the new format, and yeah, we'll see how it goes. This is the last issue of this complete collection, volume two. And, you know, so what if the Hulk had become a barbarian? Great cover from John Buscema, of course, being a Conan artist at the time. He's very popular with the Conan crowd. And it makes sense that he'd do this kind of a, a cover. But the title is very misleading because it's not uh, what if Hulk had become a barbarian. I think they're really capitalizing on the fact that Conan was very popular at the time. Oh yeah, Phil has the same comment. The cover's a little misleading. The Hulk never appears like that in the story. Yeah, very different setup. It's like, in fact, the title on the inside of the issue is what if Hulk's girlfriend Jarella had not died? And that is what the story is all about. Not about being a barbarian or anything. So we have a story from Peter Gillis and Herb Trimpy is doing the pencils with Mike Esposito doing the inks. Herb Trimpy, of course, is uh, the artist on the Hulk for a long time. So it's nice to see him again doing a Hulk issue. And Mike Esposito also has done the Hulk for a long time as well. And they actually make a pretty good team. I've said in the past that I'm not usually a huge fan of Esposito's inks, but he does a pretty good job in this issue with Trimpy. So, for the first time what reading these what-ifs, this is the first issue where I felt like I was kind of at a loss because I'm really not that familiar with what was happening in the story. I'm not familiar with this period of the Hulk at all in the 70s. It's just a big blank spot, and I've been working my way through the epic collections, which stop the, the current volume at the time of this recording, volume 4, stops in 1970, and the events in this issue of what if are in going to be in the complete collection volume five. So I'm looking forward to getting those, especially now that I know a little bit of the history here. Of course, I get some spoilers, like for instance, apparently Jarella's is going to die, but (laughs) there you go. So let's see, we come into the play and we learn a little bit about Jarella and this whole micro world that kind of appears around Hulk 200 or so. The Hulk gets shrunk down, and i was was flipping through these issues through marvel unlimited to give to give myself a little bit of background he shrinks he goes into a small world. He shrinks and goes into another world. Shrinks, shrinks, shrinks until he's in the subatomic world of Kai where he meets this woman named Jarella, who's the queen and falls in love with her. And when he's that small, he actually can retain the the intellect of Bruce Banner. So he's the Hulk strength plus the Bruce Banner smarts. And then through the course of that story, when they get uh, brought back to regular size, Jarella gets to be regular size as well. And the world that lives... On the little piece of glass, this glass slide shatters. A lot of other things happen and have some bearing to the story. Like Hulk fights this guy, Crypto Man, and Girilla dies trying to save a boy who's actually just a project, a projection, a trap. There's this one panel here that says the feedback destroys the controls and the anonymous controller in a laboratory, which oddly enough contains a strange idol. This uh, page is, this panel is totally out of place. And so I'm thinking it's going to play into the story a little bit later, but Jarella does not die in this issue and the Hulk and her continue the relationship. However, the Hulk is not smart because he's regular size because he's not in the subatomic world. And yeah, we get to see that the people are not hunting down the Hulk. Clay Quarterman takes the Hulk back to his base, and they find a way to shrink the Hulk permanently. And this is going to solve everyone's problem, of course, because they get rid of the Hulk, because he'll be shrunk. And then he'll be happy because he'll be in the world that accepts him. And they're like, okay, this is great. Let's do this. We'll shrink down the Hulk. So they shrink down, and they travel down, 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 down. And there's one stop. So suddenly the two materialize on the surface of a planet. They're shrinking, halted, and they see they see these creatures crawling along the ground. These are from an issue of the Hulk around this time as well, when they're fighting these like Nazi guys that turn into these like lizards or something. <laughs> I just saw it when I was flipping through Marvel All Limited. I, I don't know more of the story than that. I'll find that out when I read the next epic. But they keep, keep shrinking down, and then we get this great panel where there's a whole bunch of some atomic worlds. And I didn't realize that there are so many micro-worlds in the Marvel Universe. The the micro-world where that Earth tyrant Dr. Doom once ruled, that's a very early issue of Fantastic Four. The past wreckage that was once the arch-villain Hyperion's world from Avengers. The past strange domain called the Microverse from Micronauts, which was running at the time. The, this one I don't know. The Savage Splendor of Zeraconia. So someone can point out what that one is, that would be a big help to me. And then also the ty- Towers of Psycho Man's Realm, which is another early uh, Fantastic Four issue. They go through all of these somatopic realms until they finally get to the point where they are at Jarella's homeworld. And this is where the story really starts. And for the Hulk, being small doesn't mean anything because everything is relative. Everything's relatively small. So the Hulk just seemed, it seems like he's normal size. In the first several pages of this comic, it was just kind of a, a way to get the Hulk back to this world. Because that's where the story is going to begin. Hulk gets his intelligence back. And everybody welcomes him back. They're happy to see him. The Hulk and Jarella get married. Now, time has passed sure because it takes time to plan a wedding and such but why doesn't hulk get a shirt (laughs) or some pants that aren't all ripped everyone else has nice clothes you think he could dress up on his wedding day or something Uh, but anyway i guess people like the look it's pretty iconic okay so he gets to the point where some people start to attack him the squid creatures this this weird squid, squid creature so he gets mad he uh, makes a Shakespeare pun, something's rotten in the of Kai, and then we find out that, yeah, this crazy idol or whatever it is, is attacking Bruce, led by this guy. So this thing, this idol, is calling the shots in the micro-world. Hulk is going to destroy him, But this is not the end. This is just the beginning. They find out that things are starting to rise from the dead, strange fungoid growths that suddenly cover buildings. There's a mysterious machine ravaging the countryside. The whole world seems to be falling apart, and... Th- People seem to think the Hulk has something to do with it. So they gather a whole bunch of people here, all of the heroes, the superheroes of Jurella's world that I we didn't really get to experience in the in the Hulk comics, because we only spent one or two issues in that world before Hulk came back out of there and nor- got to be normal size again. So the Hulk takes these guys and he says, I'm honored, my fellow defenders, which is cool because at the time Hulk was one of the defenders, like the actual team with Doctor Strange and Silver Surfer, Namor. In fact, as I as I was flipping through Marvel Unlimited, I kept on uh, reading some issues here. Defenders guest star a couple issues after the story. So it's nice to see that Hulk is forming his own team here. So Phil Owens wants to say that Terraconia is a misspelling of Terragonia, the world of Kronak the Barbarian from Hulk uh, 201. There we go. Thank you for pointing that out, Phil. I did not know that. I will look for that one when I get that collection later this year. Okay, all of these superhero defenders, guys—they they all have names, but they're not important because we don't really focus—we don't really focus any time on any of them at all. But they prepare for battle, and they head over to uh, this place where they get a little tip where they're going to find uh, find the bad guy in this cave. whole bunch of monsters. They defeat the monsters. There's an epic battle. There's a kind of a cool battle page by Herb Trimpey where all the blue guys are fighting the green guys. The colorist has painted all of the mountains like this uh, grayish purplish color and all of the, the bad guys are dark blue and this really makes all of the green guys stand out. All of the good guys, Hulk and his team so we can tell who's on what side. It's a very clear image. And then we're brought back to the main bad guy, Lord Vissis, traitor to Jurella's court, who's mad at the Hulk and was last seen in Hulk number 155. He looks a little worse for wear here, but he reveals what his plan was. And in this page where he, where he reveals his plan, it just kind of outlines the events of um, the past issues of the Hulk, Hulk number 140 and Avengers 88, the crossover. This is kind of how it all happened in the 616 universe. And he says, this is what would have happened if you had just stayed away. I was going to kill you when you were big, but that didn't come to pass. And now I have to kill you when you're small. And the Hulk gets gets, gets to fight a robot version of himself, which also appeared in another issue of the regular Hulk. So all in all, Hulk defeats the Hulk. I like this moment here because he says, my pulse is racing. Mustn't lose control. Have to think because I guess if." If uh, he gives into the Hulk rage, then, then he'll lose the intelligence. But if he's repressing the Hulk side of me, Jirela will die and the Hulk will not let her. So Hulk saves the day. But based on this last panel, it says, uh, I know you'll be back. I know you'll try again, but I will protect this world and I will destroy you because nothing can stop the Hulk. Kind of ambiguous as to whether he has its intelligence here or not because the Hulk did speak in full sentences kind of at this time. There's nothing particularly intelligent about this little paragraph here. There's nothing stupid about it either. So not exactly sure if he if he gave into his rage completely or if this is just him talking normally. So, you know, it was a nice issue. I can understand it. It did take a little bit of extra research because I'm not familiar with these stories. But And the ending was a little bit confusing because they're bringing people in to... They're bringing people in to give these twists, but I don't know these people, so the twists are like, whatever, not not meaningful to me. I'm sure that if I were a big Hulk fan, I think I would have liked this. I would have liked to see Jerella come back at the time, because she was seemed to be a popular character at the time. But yeah, not a standout what-if issue for me, simply because I'm not familiar with this. So let's keep on moving forward. The next story here is a new section for What If called Untold Tales of the Marvel Universe. This one's written by Mark Grunewald and drawn by Ron Wilson and Chick Stone. Chick Stone on top of Ron Wilson, giving it a real Kirby feel, that's for sure. And this is a good pairing because this is a story full of Kirby concepts. The Watcher, uh, this is not a What If story. This is an Untold Tales story. So this is The Watcher telling us about the coming of the Celestials when they first came to Earth. And for those of you who don't know anything about the Eternals uh, and are looking forward to the Marvel movie that's coming out later, Um, this is a great primer. This and the subsequent story that's going to be told in the next few issues are an excellent primer on the history of the Celestials and the origin of the Eternals. So we find out how they came to Earth for the first time and a little bit about their purpose, that they're there to form new races. Great picture with most of the Celestials in the shot here. They focus on one Celestial, this this guy here, Gammonon, uh, who gathers creatures for experimentation, sends them over to this guy here, Z. Zirin, the tester, whose job it is to transport them and evolve them, and he turns them into uh, a race that they're calling the Deviants. He creates a whole bunch of these primitive men, turns them into Deviants, he lets them go, and they all go and hide underground and create an underground subterranean culture. And on the other side is this guy here, Nezar, the calculator, the blue celestial. And his job is also to experiment, but he turns them into Eternals. So that's where we get the Eternals and the Deviants. They're the two sides of the coin one is um, super evolved and one is not as evolved. And then they go off and make their home. I don't I don't remember what it's called. And then there's this last guy here, Onig the Prober and this Celestial, his job is also experimenting. He experimented on people, but it's not a speedy process. It takes a millennia in order to evolve. and in the end, it turned it, they turn out to be us humans. So we have the three distinct races created by the Celestials. And then the Celestials kind of up and go, they leave and uh, they let the people fend for themselves. That's the creation of the creation of the Eternals. And in the next issue, we're going to find out a little bit more about the Eternals themselves. So this is cool because I haven't read Eternals yet. I know of them and their story pieced together from various, you know, annual backups or whatever times that they've appeared in in comics. Uh, The DeFalco Thor stories actually talk about this a lot, but it's kind of cool to get that linear progression of how it all happened. I'm happy it's here. It's kind of weird that it's in What If, but where else are you going to put it? I don't know. It's very cool that they tie it in by having The Watcher host it as well. OK, last story. What if this is a long title? What if Peter what if Aunt May instead of her nephew Peter had been bitten by that radioactive spider? A stunning saga of an improbable reality. This is a funny story, a humor one. It's foreshadowing, foreshadowing an upcoming issue of What If? That will be all humor but yeah aunt may notices that peter forgot his lunch she knows that he's at a, his science experiment uh, like a school field trip so she rushes off to go give peter his lunch written by steve skeets who would go on to script many issues of um, spider ham later on in the 80s and alan copperberg does the artwork And instead of Peter being bitten by the radioactive spider, it's Aunt May bitten by the radioactive spider. And the events kind of just play out exactly as you expect them to. It's very much on the nose in terms of Peter's origin story in Amazing Fantasy number 15. And she gets a new costume, which looks absolutely ridiculous. This costume, I think we see in an issue of Spider-Verse, maybe on one of the covers that came up recently. I can't remember. She doesn't have any spider webs, but she has some dough, some dough that got ruined. It's really super sticky. So she puts it in a little, like, a, a, pastry, a pastry bag so she can squirt it at people. And the first villain she meets is Leapfrog. So appropriate that Aunt May tackles one of the lamest Spider-Man villains. Uh, I think they missed an opportunity by not calling her Spider-Gran instead of Spider-Man. <laughs> but... She doesn't really give herself a name in this comic at all in this story. So in this story, Peter Parker is the one who doesn't like Spider-Man. He says, "Stay away from me, you horrible monster!" and then he passes out. It's a great. It's just flipping it on its head, and that's it. It's just a four or five page story or whatever, and it's funny. It's nice, and I think that I like the variety. I don't know that I would like it in every backup story to be a funny one but it is nice to have the humor once in a while it's just uh you know great to see them branching out and being a little bit more creative and i have great hopes for the next several issues as they develop and explore this sort of uh content and quality and that's it for this issue three stories all of them were you know kind of just mediocre in my opinion not the greatest issue of what if but serviceable nonetheless. I'm hoping for some great things when we get into the next story. And what is that story? What if Spider-Man had rescued Gwen Stacy? Yeah, this should be a good one. But you'll have to tune in to our next episode of What If when we get around to recording that, and I will collect up the remaining, uh, not the remaining, sorry, the the first half of the issues that appear in the What If Complete Collection, Volume 3, starting with, yeah, what if Spider-Man had rescued Gwen Stacy? Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I will see you next time.